Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we are excited to be once again bringing back Charlie Weissong, who is a partner with Hughes Sokol Piers Resnick and Dim. For a slightly longer version of Charlie's bio, I'd encourage you to check out his first episode with us or go to the firm website, which will have a lot more detail. Charlie, welcome. Good to be with you guys. Last time you came on, you were kind enough to regale us with your tales of key TAM cases you've worked on, false claims, sort of helping um, blow the whistle on fraud and abuse of government money. We want to talk a little bit about some of your other civil rights work. So you do some employment work as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the civil rights work you do outside of key TAM and employment? Sure. You know, as you said, key TAM and employment is a lot of our, our docket, but along with my colleagues, you know, we're always looking for opportunities to use the law, particularly discrimination laws, you know, to, to remedy wrongs, right? There's a lot of things the law can do and a lot of things the law can't. So, you know, I've done a lot of work on behalf of students, for example, uh, you know, working on the inclusion for, for folks, regardless of their gender identity in school and some discipline and disability cases. You know, we've done a bunch of housing cases, you know, we, we've, we sued Joe Barrios, right, for discrimination in property taxes at one point. And so, you know, it, it cross ranges the gamut, but I think the through line is, you know, when we can partner with uh, individuals who see injustice, where we do a lot of work with nonprofits or other law firms, you know, trying to think of a creative way to, can the law help, you know, not just employees who are mistreated, but tenants of public housing or consumer class actions or, you know, individuals who've experienced discrimination in one setting or another. It's almost like being a legal Robin Hood. You're kind of going around looking for a, <laughs> you find an injustice and you're right. You say, all right, I got a square peg. Let's see if we can find a square hole for this, that somewhere there's a statute we can use that, uh, that redresses this wrong, right? You know, it, it really isn't. And I have to say that I like to think we provide two services to the clients, right? One of the things is the law is frustrating. It doesn't advance justice in all the ways it should. And so half the time, you know, a community calls me and says, this wrong thing is happening. Can we sue to stop it? And I tell them, you know what? The law says X, Y, and Z, you know, maybe you ought to protest because I'm not here to waste your time. I'm not here to waste my time. And I hope that candid conversation is helpful to people. I'd rather talk to, you know, community organizers or a parent whose kid was mistreated or, you know, somebody who's having trouble with their landlord and say, you know what? This is a problem the law doesn't solve well, even though it should. And because then there are times when we can say, you know what, there actually is a legal hook here. I had a great case a few years ago. We had senior citizens, you know, who were in a subsidized, private subsidized housing, right? In a very nice building in Lakeview, been there for decades. And the company was going to sell the building for, for reasons that are sort of neither here nor there. But the point is, you know, 100 people who'd been living for years in this building on subsidized rent were about to lose their home and they would have nowhere to go. And so we came up with some really creative legal hooks. We went over to the Daily Center and we sort of tied up the sale of the building and we, you know, and, and, and we tried to do it constructively, right? And we said to the, the landlord at the time, right? Hey, you know, we're not here just to cause grief, right? We're not just here for the lawyers have a chance to get paid, although there's nothing wrong with that. We've got clients. And so we worked with them and it, eventually those buildings went to the CHA and everybody got to keep their homes. They even 
and got a little, a little check for the trouble, frankly. And so that's sort of, you know, when is there an injustice? We can find a legal angle. Let's run with it. Let's see if we can do it because that's what's exciting about this job and this profession. And when there's not, I hope it's, it's helpful to tell people that, that there's not, or at least that I don't see an angle because that's useful for non-lawyers to know. That's super pragmatic. And the, the sense I get talking to you today and from your first episode too, is you really enjoy the strategy component of this job of like figuring out the way, like finding an injustice and strategically figuring out what do we do about it? For sure. You know, it's creativity, right? You know, that's where I think we've gotten involved in a lot of unusual cases at Hugh Sokol, not only the, the Presbyterian Homes case I talked about, right? But, you know, I said we sued Joe Barrios for race discrimination. We're going after ComEd for their corruption. You know, we've done a lot. I've done a lot of work around um, discrimination against the LGBTQ community, right? And that's an area where, thankfully, the law is improving, frankly. We're, we're in a good place in Illinois. I, I can offer people help when they're mistreated based on their gender identity, their sexual orientation in a lot of ways. And and how do we do that strategically? Because so many of my clients come to me and they say, yes, something bad happened to me. But, you know, we know that the financial payment that the law would offer as a remedy, it, it, it's important, but it only goes so far. And so many of them are really worried about, you know, I, yes, I want what happened to me stopped, but I want to stop the next time. Right. And that's what I just I love partnering with clients who are, yes, concerned that they were mistreated or their child was mistreated, but they want the policy to stop or they want the manager to stop or they want they want training put in place so that there isn't another time down the line and finding ways to work on those causes. That's really just it's really exciting. Well, and it's it's nice you get to do that because I think and I'm and I think I've talked about this a few times that it's not a lot of the time when you represent individuals in these employment cases, you can get them some kind of financial remedy, often not what they think they're, you know, they're entitled to or what we, you know, the law caps what we can do a lot of the time. But a lot of the time I find myself when it's just an individual saying, listen, I, I, I wish I could change the policy, but short of, you know, winning a judgment or getting some kind of a settlement where they're agreeing to do that, chances are we're just talking money. It's nice you can often come up with an actual change that makes sure, well, maybe this is less likely to happen to somebody else next time or, or it's not going to happen anymore. Sure. And, and some of that's the deterrence of if the one wrong is expensive enough, people will be more careful or, or sometimes it is, right? That's why it's, it's, it's great when you can find a way to make something a class action, right? Because then you've got the economies of scale so that the defendant, whether that's a public entity or a private entity doing something wrong, they had the incentive to offer those systematic changes. You can also get enough, you know, small harms put together that you can make it work as a lawsuit. And so, you know, how do we make something, you know, asserting legal rights? rights or trying to remedy wrongs on behalf of groups of people. It takes an extra layer of creativity, but it's really, really, I think, you know, important and what a lot, what motivated a lot of us to go to law school, right? How can we try to use the tools we have, recognizing they're limited to make things better? You know, or sometimes, you know, we can use you know, disparate impact cases. You and I were talking in the break about we have a series of cases we've done against the city of Chicago for the physical tests, right? They use the Chicago Fire Department. For years, they've had physical tests to get in that were poorly designed and much harder for women to pass. I would say they are to uh, keep women out is <laughs> the claims, right? There's a, a very long, sad history of that. But when you have a test, an actual policy, and you can sue them and say, hey, this policy, this practice, this test is discriminatory, you need to get rid of it. Uh, and they do and they have because of this series of lawsuits, you can say, hey, over time, over the last decades of litigation, there's a lot of work to be done, but we actually did remove that barrier and we did get that test changed. And we have gotten this woman and this woman and this woman, you know, a whole series of plaintiffs, you know, 
able to have these careers or, or get this job. It's, it's, it takes a lot of perseverance. It takes a lot of great partners and other firms and, and, and great courageous clients, but it's, it's really satisfying. We're able to make that happen. You just alluded to an employment case you've brought against the city of Chicago on a class basis. Is there are there major differences other than the obvious in a lot of discrimination cases? You have to go to the EEOC or Department of Human Rights first. But besides that, what are some differences in bringing a consumer class action versus, say, an employment discrimination or, or wage an hour class or collective action? Sure. Well, so when you're when you're looking for a class action that's not an employment case, the thing is first trying to figure out, you know, what is the common thread between all the people, right? So if I have a bunch of residents at a at a housing complex with the, with the tenants are all being mistreated, right? What is the the glue that binds together all of their situations? And then I think you're much more conscious in a class action about sort of and and who will the spokespersons be? Right? Who are your class representatives going to be? How are they going to illustrate the harm? And so I think you have to have a lot more strategy about sort of framing the lawsuit around a common problem with good spokespeople, good class representatives who can really illustrate to the court the wrong that was done and and how the remedy should be done. You know, the remedy should, you should reach. And I think the other thing is that just like an employment class action, you're just fundamentally thinking about and as a as a class lawyer, a lawyer for the certified class or even a putative class, right? You have an obligation not only to your individual client, but to the group as a whole, because that's who you're representing. And so I think there's a really both exciting and challenging dynamic with whoever comes forward to bring the lawsuit. On one hand, some class reps are amazing champions for the other people who have experienced the same harm. And that's incredible for them to come forward. At the same time, they have to recognize that it's not just about them, right? And so there's some compromise when you're here to represent a group of tenants or a group of workers or, or any group of people. So I, I think the the scale and sort of the strategy gets a little different in a way that's interesting, but has some real opportunities. So are you often in those situations almost mediating between individual interests amongst the class representatives plus like policy changes that they can actually cause and implement for a broader group of people on one side while also simultaneously negotiating with the other side. Yeah, you, you, you absolutely name anytime you're looking in collective or class litigation, it's, it's more complicated interests, right? What do the defendants want? What do the individuals want? If you're representing a group of people, even if you have a, a multi-plaintiff case with 12 individuals, they have individual situations or individual interests, or you have a whole class with hundreds of people. And, and I think it's, it's complicated, but the key there is communication, right? You got to tell people upfront what they're getting into, what it's going to be like. You've got to recognize, okay, these are the competing interests and here's how we're going to navigate that. And I think if you really, if you include the clients and the, and the, and your litigation partners from the beginning about the whole context of a litigation, okay, you're going to come forward as a class action. This would be your role as a class representative. This is what it's going to look like for settlement. You know, most people want to do, um, you know, the right thing. And, and want to help others, not just themselves. That's what's so inspiring. And so I think that those are a lot of dynamics that you're sort of managing and, you know, ongoing communications, the way you just have to handle that for sure. So you've alluded to this a little bit and you've used, I think you've kind of already given the answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyways, how, why did you end up becoming an attorney, going to law school, going through this whole rigmarole? You know, I, I've always been interested, right. In trying to, to, 
you know, change society to make it better, right? Make government function better, make, you know, fight discrimination, make the world, you know, more fair and just, which is really vague. But I, I, I actually do love the mechanics of lawyering. As Max said, I like the strategy. I, I like brief writing. I like advocating. I like, does, you know, trying to see how we can use the tools we have. So I, I went to law school because I like the, the nuts and bolts of, of really lawyering, which is um, terrific because it's, it's a lot of work, but also to combine that with, you know, working with others on some of these issues that I really care about. And so with that prior to Hughes, you worked at Equip for Equality. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did there? Yeah, sure. So before I came to to the firm, I was at Equip for Equality on a Skadden fellowship. So I had two years and I was doing legal aid work, right? All free legal services. And I was doing education work. So I worked with hundreds and hundreds of children, students and their parents, all across Illinois, working on all kinds of school issues. Equip for Equality is a disability rights organization. So it was, you know, school discipline hearings, expulsion hearings. It was getting students the accommodations and services they need. It was looking at policies of, of, of funding and discipline codes and how that affected children with disabilities. And I did a lot of work around charter schools and sort of how those schools are regulated in our, in our system. And, and it, it was much more the the one-on-one client services right than the the impact sort of you know big case that i'm doing now and i think it was really really important for me uh, to be grounded in that client relationship and always come to a lawsuit and to a legal issue through the eyes of the client because that's i think really where things begin and if you lose track of that you soon sort of lose your way so that's a lot of what i was doing at equip interesting you say that we have an interview that has not yet aired with jennifer mondino of the she runs the times up legal defense fund that's connected with the legal network for gender equity and Oh my God, I always forget the third organization that's associated. I did it during the interview too. But she talked about that was a career path she'd had where she started in big law very, very briefly left. And and she ended up at the DOJ doing impact litigation in that sense against a lot of different, you know, state and municipals, police and, and other government agencies that had run, you know, run a follow what they ought to be doing, lost their way, what have you. And she said the same thing that like she credited a lot of what she did to having that client direct client service experience and just that that's something you really can't you can't pay for it right like it's just it grounds what you do it it helps you kind of guide your it gives you a north star guides where you're going on this stuff it's kind of having that in the back of your head is really one of those things you i think all of us do well to to have Sure. And, and the great thing about legal services, right? I mean, the great thing is that you can help folks who'd never have access to a lawyer otherwise, right? I mean, just people who are facing tremendous, you know, life life-changing situations, right? I worked with at least a dozen kids facing expulsion. None of my clients in two years were ever expelled, but just what that means for their children and the normal parent, frankly, the middle-class parent, virtually no parent can afford, right, to pay lawyers to come in and help with the problem at school. And yet it's so important to their family and to their kids. And so, you know, the amazing thing about doing that one-on-one work is the life-changing and and empowering work you can do for that one person is so consequential at the same time, right? Right? You're in the system and, and one by one is a slow way to change the system, right? So I hope now that we work more with groups and like thinking about systematic policy, it's always got to be grounded in what does it mean to the individual, but I love being able to sort of, you know, we do individual cases. I still help individual people. It's really satisfying, but also ground our work in changing systems and, and multi-plaintiff and sort of class action work in what does it mean for those individuals? So I, I try to always remember that grounding for what lawyers should be doing really. 
So how did you go? I, I think that's wonderful. And then from that point, how did you go from doing educational work with EFB to employment law? So uh, that came along with coming to, to, to Hugh Sokol, right? So uh, Hugh Sokol had done a little bit of education work, right? The firm did the Rockford desegregation case in the 90s. They'd done some other school-related work. And through that, some other connections, I connected with the firm and sort of broadened out from there. I always knew I wanted to do you know, civil rights, what I think of as public interest work. And so I was excited to bring you know, my interest in education are certainly something I can continue to do somewhat at the firm. I was on the governor's state task force for inclusive schools and I've represented some kids, but then also to work on the employment cases, which is a lot of what Hugh Sokol has done along with every, everyone else. So that's been a nice thing to branch out, I'd say, coming with the firm and the broader practice. Well, and you know, you gave us this answer earlier about you became a lawyer because A, you actually want to help people, but then also B, you enjoy the nuts and bolts and the brief writing. And I think your career path and your resume kind of reflects that because before Equip for Equality, you're a law clerk then for the Seventh Circuit and Judge Posner. So tell us a little bit about, you know, just what you learned about brief writing and the technicalities and the nuts and bolts of being a lawyer in that role. You know, clerking is is fabulous. I had a I had a wonderful year. I, I just truly enjoyed working for Judge Posner, who's an incredibly interesting jurist. But I think really anybody at any level in any court, the opportunity for a lawyer, particularly early in your career, to spend time observing advocacy and talking with judges, you just learn how they think, you learn how they react to legal arguments. You learn what is sort of effective writing. You learn, particularly on an appellate court, you know, they, they think much more about sort of legal issues, like what is the the, the doctrine or the test going to be? Right? It's, it is always about, you know, between the two parties, right? You know, what is the right outcome under the law? But they also just think so much more about how do you talk about and how do you write about what is the legal standard for Title VII discrimination or for this securities issue or for how should the next case be handled? And so I felt like it was really nice to be able to get insight into how judges think about deciding cases, but also, you know, effective advocacy. And I think one of the things on that that I learned was it's it's un- understated advocacy is perhaps underrated, right? It, it's You want to be sober because that really is important to your credibility, I think. Someone who doesn't know you or your case or your history, no matter how right you are and how wrong your opponent is, the first thing you are trying to always establish and defend with a, a court, any court, is your credibility and, and taking a very above board you know, understated tone is, is almost always the way to get to, to, to be successful in that forum. So Judge Posner has one of maybe the best article I've read on writing. So it was something I read right out of law school. It, he's talking about, he's dealing with a trademark dispute. And we talk a lot about football on this podcast, so this flows pretty well. So it's a trademark dispute between the Indiana, Indianapolis Colts and the Baltimore Ravens. And they come up for oral argument. He's still not understanding what's at issue despite reading all the briefs and going through the record. And he just asked, I think, one of the attorneys, do you have the trademark? What, what's the problem? And someone pulled out a hat, just randomly they had in their briefcase, and then it crystallized it. And his whole point was, you have to, when you're writing as an advocate, think about this from the judge's perspective. It makes things easier for us. If you want to put a picture in your brief, do that if that's going to help. Highlight the key contract clauses. Don't make us go through a thousand-page record. And so, you know, in my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, if this was my day-to-day, it's my nine-to-five type job, and it's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, and now I'm opening up a brief about a copyright dispute, what is going to make it easy for me to understand the issue as the person on the receiving end of that? 
And so I, I just loved his article on that. I thought it was really well done. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it is so true, right? That, you know, first maybe is credibility. Second is, is clarity. And those two things often go go hand in hand. I, you know, I have yet in practice or clerking to encounter a, a judge that wasn't incredibly busy. Right? <laughs> you know, courts care. Most jurists are incredibly hardworking, caring people, and, and they want to do the right thing and, and, and they will work very hard, but make their job easier for them. Make it clear, make it straightforward, and, and, and be precise, right? And always completely forthcoming because it's, it's, it, it, it just makes their job easier and that makes it easier for them to understand why your client should win. Were there, I guess, by that same token, so you've got some good suggestions. Was there anything you saw that you felt like was a common mistake or you'd see an attorney do something one too many times? You're like, oh, I know how this one ends. I guess so kind of taking the glass half empty version of it. You know, I mean, it, 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 in argument, always listen, right? I mean, don't, don't listen to yourself. Listen to the judge, always 100% responding to the questions and, and utter, utter respect. Uh, and the same, I would say, is particularly at least at the appellate level, right? It, they expect a very sober argument style. This is not the place for jury <laughs> overstatements or grandiosity. It will, it will not go over well. And then it's, it's funny, I'm, you, you mentioned the picture thing. I'm all for unconventional argument and things that are, that are sort of make things clear, but it's it, you know, observing those little things like the... Um, how uh, cleaned up and precise your brief is, right? Those little errors, even if they aren't substantive, the reason that lawyers obsess over them is because if you have a few too many, you know, misstatements, misquotes, typos, it's not that they think you are wrong or unintellectual. It just it, it infects the brain in terms of the credibility you give to the statement. So just I think attentiveness to rules, requirements, and details does it, it pays off. Well, and a lot of times, too, the first person reading those briefs is probably a recent law clerk or is a law clerk with a recent law student who probably just spent a year or two or more of their lives staring at footnotes and staring at formatting. And so they're almost a gatekeeper. And if you lose credibility with that person, you're inevitably going to lose credibility with the main judge. Right. The law student who just got dinged every year on legal writing for one <laughs> for one out of place comma in a citation is is going to be the the person least likely to give you any quarter as a full practicing attorney for being sloppy with your footnoting and whatnot. I, um, I, the one thing I do love about appellate oral arguments is the back and forth. It is more of a like a and again I'm I'm a nerd and we can nerd out a little bit on this podcast, but it is like this academic or nerdy legal conversation you could have at like a Starbucks or a bar. And that part of it seems so cool to me. It's not like an over embellishment, like you said, grandiose jury argument, but it is a cool, you know, Sorkin type TV show where there can be this awesome back and forth. Yeah, it, it, it is can be terrific because there's often, you know, there's often excellent advocacy on important and interesting issues, you know, on a record. And you can think about the law and what it is and what it should be, you know, without getting caught up in whether the, the request for production was too broad or too burdensome. You know, the discovery <laughs> at the appellate level, right, they sort of a, a bit of a sanitized record. And um, that sort of is what it is. Every situation is different, but it can be incredibly interesting. And I agree, just very fun to watch, you know, judges and advocates think about talking about legal issues by and large in, at a very high level of discourse that is that is encouraging for our judiciary system it was a, i was a moot court guy myself in law school so i was I, I haven't gotten the opportunity yet but i've always had a soft spot for appellate advocacy but i'll never forget in legal writing our professor used to take us 
So for one hour a year, they'd take us to the Seventh Circuit to watch an argument before we did. Kent has an annual of uh, the Charles Evans Hughes moot court um, competition. And the, the panel we drew had Judge Easterbrook on it as the head judge that day. And it might have even been an employment case. I mean, I was a one L, right? Like, I don't think I totally knew enough yet to understand quite yet what I was watching. But God help this guy. He cut off Easterbrook one too many times and uh, talked over him. And Easterbrook just stops him in the middle of it. And Judge Easterbrook, I should say, stops him in the middle and goes, don't you dare talk over me. <laughs> there was that. And then at some point, I think he just volunteers. He goes, well, that was a big mistake. He goes, maybe a sanctionable mistake. And uh, thank goodness the other opponent, uh, the, the respondent, I think, gets up and goes, you know, just for the record, your honors, I just want to say, you know, we have this dispute, but I, I, I don't think opposing counsel should be sanctioned. He's been nothing but a gentleman like this and that. And it's like I, that poor guy probably woke up that day not realizing what he was about to step into. I, that one I yeah. never forgot. I wish well, our listeners could have seen Charlie's eyes on that. <laughs> <laughs> just, well, you know what? What a lesson! What a lesson for law students, right? You're getting commentary on appropriate on, on appellate advocacy delivered with directness, no doubt. <laughs> the most direct of deliveries. <laughs> you know, somebody. You know, so, if they keep doing Zoom, or they have, you know, they've been doing Zoom. But if someone were to get permission to take clips of like Seventh Circuit arguments, you could make a great like. 1L seminar, like using those videotapes as like pointers and things, you know, not even in a, in a very constructive way. I think that'd be really fascinating. Actually, as a law student, that would be great to be watching so, clips of ad of, of advocacy like that. I, I, I so what I do, I've been teaching a class at Loyola on appellate advocacy, and there are videos of really good appellate attorneys arguing cases. So Neil Cottrell arguing the travel ban in the Ninth Circuit is online. And it's really awesome just to watch him, just even his preparation, because it's so different in terms of how you're going to prepare for an oral argument. You're not going to have 50 sheets of paper in front of you. At best, you may have two. And so all of that is, I highly recommend if there are any law students listening to this, if you can find videos of good appellate advocates arguing, watch those. Or if you're an attorney and you're trying to prepare for one. Yeah. And moot, you know, I, I, I partly because I clerked and partly because, you know, a, a law nerd of sorts and I just love law you know, writing. It's it's so much fun that we've mooted Neela colleagues. I've mooted my Hugh Sokol colleagues. I've, I've done a few arguments myself. And it's just it's so great to dig into these legal issues. And so, you know, energizing as a lawyer to work on any of these appeals. You know, it, I think it's it's always fun to even just talk through people, you know, appeal issues and legal issues, right, with anybody who's facing them. And so it's it's a fun part of the job to be able to do that with our, both our, you know, Neela colleagues and others around Chicago, for sure. Charlie, remind us again how folks can find you if they want to get a hold of you to talk about this or if they listen to your most recent episode um, about false claims work. How can people find you? Sure. Easiest way is on the firm website, hsplegal.com. Obviously, the lawyers are there. My phone number, my email, happy to talk with anybody. You know, As I said before, the, the best part of the job is collaborating with folks around Chicago and around the country on, on interesting cases and interesting legal issues, even just a brainstorm. You know, happy to, happy to do so. All right. Well, a huge thank you to Charlie Weissong for joining us again today uh, on a Sunday afternoon when he could be with his children and his family. It's always good to have an excuse to to nerd out and talk law with our NILA colleagues. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. Please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host opinions. We are not your attorneys. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.